The Cambie Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Quequitlam peoples. August 5th, 2022, and there are 71 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Camby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Stuff is happening. It's so busy. Stuff is happening this morning, of all times. I th- like, it's yeah. very well-timed. I thought we could have it's a nice breaking. little summer holiday in there. I had some time off, family visiting, all that Why kind of stuff. Why would you think this? This, is, this race is shaping up to be as crazy as the last one. Or more, and, but we're back. We are committed to going straight through to the election. We're going to have lots of content for you over the coming months. But you, we need your support to keep that up. Yes, and you can support us at patreon.com slash report. Yes, patreon.com slash report. Help us pay for editing. Help us pay for ads if we run them. Help us just make this show as great as it can be. Should we start with the big yes, news? Yes, your source for citizen journalism. Yeah, let's do it. John Cooper, the NPA's erstwhile mayoral candidate, has resigned his candidacy with the Nonpartisan Association, ducking out of the race and leaving a gap on the right. Yes, they put out a release this morning after having a board meeting last night to discuss the progress of the campaign. They say they've accepted his resignation as mayoral candidate. Then no... No details are given as to why, other than the campaign sucked, and they do plan to announce a new mayoral candidate at a future date. Dot, dot, dot. Yes. That is interesting. I am surprised that they are doing that, although not totally surprised. I mean, they are still, ostensibly, they have a lot of name recognition at the very least. Not all of it great name recognition, but they do have a lot of name recognition. They are an established force in the municipal politics, so it's not entirely inconceivable that they would have a mayoral candidate. Getting one this stage in the race may be difficult. I don't know who they're going to convince to run. Certainly no whispers so far about it, and I can't see Melissa DiGenova jumping into a race that she would almost certainly lose. <laughs> What do you make of this? It's very weird, right? It's probably strategically smart because their campaign has been floundering. They need to do something. And it's clear that Cooper was not the energy, which I'm pretty sure we said at the time, he was not the energy the party needed. He was always a weird kind of choice. The party's been suffering for a couple of years. They lost Rebecca Bly, and then they lost three more counselors. Ironically, right after picking John Cooper as their mayoral candidate, the board said, we're going to pick him. He's a slightly more moderate voice than our board has been looking. We were looking really far, and he is just bland as toast. And it turns out bland as toast is not what the people of Vancouver are quite that interested in. Yeah, George Affleck was commenting that this was indicative of an opportunity for the MPA, which I think is a little bit of perhaps magical thinking, the idea that 40% decided, which is a poll that we will get to in a moment, we're saying that 40% undecided, uh, to me, says that 
no one is actually taking the capturing the imagination of the electorate, and this leaves an opportunity. It does. I wonder whether or not the undecided people are going to vote or not. But certainly, if someone incredible were to jump in uh, on behalf of the NPA, that could shake up the race. I I always viewed the NPA campaign this time around as a bit of an also-ran against Ken Sims, much more organized and present party, and of course, Kennedy Stewart. Yeah, Vancouver, most municipal elections don't have great turnout. Vancouver, I can't find the number for the last election out here. It was 39% for 2018. It was 43% in 2014. So 40% undecided is probably just the people who aren't going to bother to make a decision. Like you mentioned, Sim has some energy behind his campaign or has had some. Hardwick has a weird amount. It's not that weird when you think that there's a core of people who just don't want anything to ever change. That energy is all there. Funny aside about team, while I was at Pride at the festival on Sunday, there's the official booths of the Pride Festival on the on Sunset Beach there where you pay your $150 exhibitor fee and whatever else, and you greet all the fancy, lovely people all day. Up above where the parade ends on the top of the hill there at the street, there's this sad-looking table with a Team for Livable Vancouver banner hung over it, ironically in the shade of the trees and buildings, as the members of Team set up an unofficial, unregistered booth on public (laughs) land to... Attract some attention from the festival goers. Amazing. On team guerrilla campaigning. So, you mentioned the poll. This is in iPolitics. It's the latest numbers from Main Street. And I will caveat that Main Street's polling in municipal elections took a really big hit in Calgary a couple cycles ago when I think they had a 13 point miss. They were like, Nahid Nenshi's going to lose. This guy Smith, I think it was going to come and take win the clear majority and they were wrong and i don't know that they've really recovered their reputation since then maybe i'm just really biased against them ontario pollster trying to wade into vancouver politics with a small sample size they found yeah 40 percent undecided kennedy stewart has 17 percent colleen hardwick 13 mark marison and ken sim are tied at 11 yeah and and this is really interesting in so much as it, it illustrates what a nothing burger the Cooper resignation is, because no one was supporting him anyway. <laughs> I think he was sitting at 5 or 8% in this poll. Like, it barely made the headlines, so. It was 6, yeah. It was, yeah. The really interesting thing is, one, Colleen Hardwick doing as well as she is, which I think people should be concerned about if they are against the ideas of Colleen Hardwick, as I know many of you are, <laughs> and I personally am concerned. It's it's definitely within striking distance if a bunch of people can be energized by the idea of not having Vancouver changed. This is a campaign that this is somewhat of a truism and tautology, but the campaign will be won by turnout. <laughs> 
Uh, because of course it will. <laughs> but there is a large enough undecided population that motivating your base to get out and vote is going to be the biggest factor in determining who's going to be Vancouver's next mayor. Yeah, and as much shade as I was throwing at Main Street, I have heard and seen that other polling is suggesting team is a stronger competitor than we might have predicted three or six months ago. So it's not an unbelievable poll. Once you're into the 10% range of numbers on polling, it's really hard to know how much to trust them because there's quite a wide range of uncertainty. And so are Ken Sim and Mark Marison tied? I really don't know. We don't have enough data to say. No, it's we don't know. But like, if this poll is actually true, this is incredibly good news for Mark Marison, who is catching up with the top-tier competitors. For, I think in the last major poll that we saw, he was sitting at 8% behind like Stewart, who was sitting well out in front with 34%. And this had a different methodology with respect to undecided voters, admittedly. But it would show a substantial uptick in support for Marison and showing a little bit of traction on his campaign's part. Let's move into a bit of a roundup of follow-up stories from the last few weeks, things that we've talked about, I think, mostly in the past. The first off is the big thing that passed. There are actually two big things to pass council recently. No, two things that took a lot of time. One thing is actually a big substantive thing, and that's the Vancouver plan. It's now the, it's not law, but it's the guiding principle that staff should be working towards. They did it, Matthew. They managed to pass it, some version of it. Yes, some version of it has sailed through council, bumping its way against the rocky shoals of amendments, picking up barnacles as it goes. In particular, the barnacles that have attached themselves to the Vancouver Plan's hull are and in dangerous territory of overextending the metaphor, an expandment of renter protections, the allowance of nonprofit housing without rezoning, clarifying low-income rates for housing, all three of which were moved by Gene Swanson and passed unanimously, as well as tenant relocation policies, which passed without unanimous consent. Yeah, one of the more controversial amendments to come in, and in just a weird way, it was from Mayor Kennedy Stewart, he wanted the city to recognize that Harlem Bartholomew, whom some listeners will know as the chief city planner who designed the original layout for Vancouver, was a segregationist and much of his plan was imbued with anti-black racism. He would, Stewart would have the city apologize to the black communities and take concrete steps to address anti-black racism, both through the Vancouver plan and just more broadly. Pete Fry said, that sounds great, but what about the other discriminated communities? Let's make sure they're in there as well. And this came after groups like Hogan's Alley had criticized the Vancouver plan for not including enough feedback from black communities. Fry's amendment to all races matter, it passed with councillors Christine Boyle, Gene Swanson, and Mayor Stewart opposed the amended amendment passed unanimously. I should say, when we say unanimously, there's going to be some random absence in this. We'll link to the minutes that have all of the votes. But yes, yeah, the one person of I, color what, what a, on council. What a weird thing to happen. Yeah, 
It's strange that this has happened. I don't really get it. Sure, I guess it's important to acknowledge all our faults, but this was a specific thing. I don't know that this necessarily needed to be part of the Vancouver Plan motion itself, but there it is being part of the motion, and council apparently thought it should be. So who am I to argue with our democratically elected overlords? Uh, Stephanie Allen on Twitter I'll link to a thread of hers when this was being debated at council. She said she had so much to say about this, but is also just so tired. Black people in Vancouver have always stood in solidarity with First Nation and all marginalized people. When it came time to specifically name and address the history of anti-Black racism, we get councillors arguing for an All Lives Matter version. And she goes on from there. Yeah. Half marks, council. That is what it is. Yeah, half marks. Christine Boyle moved amendments to include an implementation timeline over the next four years and to rezone in the entire city for four floors of strata or six floors of rental co-op with land value capture mechanisms. This is one of the bigger amendments in my mind. It is a good amendment. Timelines are great. I can't imagine them being met, but it is ambitious. And I think ambition is the thing that that the city needs in order to grow and meet its growth yeah, targets. Yeah, I think Swanson's and Boyle's substantive amendments, to be clear, these do just direct staff to report back on all of the things we're talking about. I didn't want to overfill our notes on this. Um, but the renter protection, Swanson would have the same level of protections that were included in the Broadway plan, go citywide. The entire city, all residential, could be nonprofit without rezoning, which could be really good. And Boyle's move to allow four six-floor buildings everywhere would also be really meaningful changes. Yeah. Very reminiscent of the rezone the entire city rhetoric that was bandied about in the last election. But it's nice to finally see some of it actually getting Ironically coming from the left. Michael Weave. Yeah. And not the right where it was coming from during the last campaign. Great. <laughs> sure. Stumbling towards eventually getting something the Vancouver way. Michael Weeb had an amendment to include a well-being framework that centered Indigenous and First Nation concepts. This is the let's move away from GDP to a happiness index that passed unanimously. Lisa Dominato wanted to include a heritage values map. Adrian Carr wanted a more substantive inclusion of the Climate Emergency Action Plan goals and how to accelerate that with parts of the plan. She named a few things, including reallocating 11% of streets in the city for non-car amenities, which is a nice number to put in there. What does that know, mean? Close, 10 per- close yeah. 11% of the streets and let you have them as parks? I guess. that Or bikeways? That's a lot. That's a lot of that's a lot of street. <laughs> the city is never going to be truly bikeable until we get like bike lifts installed. We need I think just a couple of like major bike lifts just to get people up like China Creek Hill and that bit of heather where like the the uh, road turns <laughs> vertical. And finally Rebecca Bly's amendment was to include a right of first refusal bylaw for the city. This would mean that any property or housing that goes up for sale, the city could be the first to go, I want it, we'll buy it. And then they could put housing on those. She also put in an amendment to include minimum unit sizes, so you can't have micro suites. Yeah, one one side good, one side 
I'm not necessarily against micro suites. I think that in general, minimum unit sizes are a effort to preserve property values. So I am skeptical of the livability argument there. If people, I think people just get outraged when they hear that a 200 square foot half suite is up for sale, and they're like, "Isn't that a bedroom?" Yeah, it's a difficult thing, but there are. People get outraged, but people will choose to live in them. That's the thing. It's a way of people pricing out competition to ensure minimum, by ensuring minimum unit sizes, by ensuring that there must be a minimum price. We just need more of all sizes. Things have gotten small in many cases, but let's talk about the Vancouver Pound Pass. So all of this got squeezed in there. This passing, though, is pretty impressive. We were worried for a minute there that it would get kicked to the next council. The next council does have to decide what to do with this and how to move it forward. But the full yeah, plan... finding those several thousand houses, 7,000 houses a year, that is going to be the next council's job. The full but plan, those yeah. Those growth targets have been incorporated into city law, he says in air quotes. I should note, councillors Melissa DiGenova and Colleen Hardwick voted against the final decision to vote on this so it wasn't unanimous but that's not too surprising um but it did get pretty broad support if you have everyone from cope to a better city vancouver endorsing this yeah it is a big achievement of this council a council that is you know honestly rather bereft of big achievements so Kudos to council. I am impressed that something like this were was able to actually pass. And uh, bravo to all of you, Gold Star. The other thing they managed to pass was a single rezoning at 8th and Arbutus <laughs> for a facility. Oh, there was so much debate on this. This is the supportive housing project proposed by BC Housing. It had 250 speakers, roughly, as people decided whether or not poor people could live in Kitsilano. That's all it came down to. Eventually, the decision, yeah, the decision came down to, yes, they can, with Sarah Kirby Young, Melissa Genova, and Colleen Hardwick against. So much debate, so much public anger, so much ire raised in the community. It has had knock-on effects that have stemmed into the very top offices at BC Housing where the CEO of BC Housing has resigned. Yes, Shane Ramsey put out a Twitter thread that was pretty damning. He talked about how frustrated and toxic his workplace is becoming under BC Housing, especially since May. He flagged that he's basically just not felt as safe, both broadly with rising anti-homeless rhetoric and violence, that we'll get into as well a bit later, but also just direct confrontations that he faced with people living in Kitsilano after this vote. Yeah, he was saying that he had some interactions with people who were against the passage of this particular development that escalated to the point of qualifying as assault against him. That That is really tragic to hear. This man was quite respected in the housing community and was generally seen as a housing advocate. Uh, he denounced nimbyism and misinformation and pled 
pleaded with council to approve this project and many others. It is unfortunate that, quote, he no longer has confidence that he can solve the complex problems facing them at BC Housing. BC Housing itself had also been under fire just a couple months ago. The provincial government and David Eby, as housing then housing minister, fired the entire board and replaced it, citing a number of concerns that have been flagged by external reviews. And it has the smell of leaving before you get fired in some ways and managed to go out on your own terms. But I don't know if there was an intention to fire him. But if your entire board is getting sacked, there's a good chance the leadership is also getting turfed. So I don't fully know what's happening at BC Housing, but it is ugly. Yeah, it is a big upheaval. Basically, the leadership at BC Housing was replaced. The original board appointed by Selena Robinson had been more composed of housing advocates and that kind of person. It was replaced by a board that was comprised more of former government bureaucrats, deputy ministers, and who were more fiscally focused. Shane Ramsey, I'm not sure, was entirely pleased with this and has illustrated this in like this lengthy resignation statement that seems to broadly outline, one, his doubts that he can make meaningful change anymore to the personal safety of himself in a highly charged rhetorical climate, and then as a matter of protest against general trends of violence against the homeless community. So, very tumultuous times. Thankfully, at least the project at 8th and Arbutus is moving ahead. The 13 floors will provide housing for a number of people who don't have many other options. Yeah, and like, this is something that, like when I was working for an MLA on the North Shore and and working with some of the, like, organizations up there, like the Lookouter, they would constantly reiterate that homelessness is not a downtown east side problem. Homelessness is not a Vancouver problem. Homelessness is a problem for every community all across the Lower Mainland. And no community can turn a blind eye to it. There are people who have their support networks across the city who are unhoused in the West End as much, or West Vancouver, or the West Side as much as there are in East Van. Indeed, and during debates, council members pointed out that projects in East Van sailed through council, whereas this faced an obscene amount of opposition and just a number of ugly claims that really devolved down to how dare you consider putting people with mental illness, drug use issues in a neighborhood beside Catholic private school and where wealthier people live. Yeah. I got yelled at on Twitter for pointing out my support for this project because they're like you don't live in the neighborhood and i was like i used to live at 12th and vine and they're like that's a different area than 8th and arbutus (laughs) no it's not that's right you have to cross broadway matthew it takes you out of official kitsilano (sighs) what okay fine whatever it's good that this passed it's a 
surprised that Mr. Ramsey is leaving, and I will leave it at that. Updating you on a story that we brought you last time around, the POCO exit from the local government association. Yeah, uh, a couple other journalists. We why? don't know officially yet, but journalists at Tri-Cities Dispatch and Tri-City News have both managed to hound the city a little bit more than I was able to. And the official reasons are under wraps and the official staff recommendations are under wraps because it was all done in closed committee meetings, closed council meetings, so we can't ever know. But we do know that the city's annual costs for joining it, which was among the reasons considered and I guess ultimately considered to be a financial barrier or harm or hardship to the city of Port Coquitlam, the cost was $2,250 per year. That does sound like it would break an entire municipality's bank and not be a rounding error. I'll throw a link in I'll throw a link oh, in the show notes it's- to the Tri-Cities Dispatch story exploring this. It has an interview with friend of the pod, Stuart Prest, who mulls about why this might have been done, just highlighting that it's very weird to do something like this with no official reason. And like, $2,200 is a pittance. So, Yeah, it's... It's weird in that, like, it's so small potatoes, but it also is a matter of, like, public accountability where council shouldn't be making these kinds of decisions in camera. There's no reason for this to be in closed session. And uh, if council is putting things in closed session because they're having interpersonal problems and issues working together, then we deserve as the citizens to actually see that they're having problems working together so we can make informed decisions in the next election. Indeed. Speaking of the next election, let's talk about the other big story of the week from Dan Fumano about the new shady group that's trying to influence the upcoming election. This is Chip Wilson has given 380... It's not even shady. It's not shady. It's just Chip Wilson being like just a uh, right wing provocateur. Chip Wilson has <laughs> put up three hundred and eighty thousand dollars, pennies to him, to support right leaning candidates across the city. Although he flags not Surrey or Vancouver, he wants to defeat quote socialist opponents. Yeah, this is unsurprising. Chip Wilson has been relatively active and was a big supporter of, for example, Ken Sim in the last Vancouver election. There are calls that he has made to get other rich people, basically, to donate to other right-leaning candidates across the region and has... So, Chip Wilson has launched the Pacific Prosperity Network for these funds to come together. The idea is to get people donating fifty to $200,000. Now, I'll note that well exceeds the, I think it's $1,200 limit you're allowed to give to a third party to advertise during the election period, or the $1,200 you could give to an individual candidate. But their idea is to, quote, build software to run a successful campaign to gather big data, empower grassroots, and be an effective full-time voice for the right. Don't sound like they want to do advertising so much as background support campaign and networking and training. What and I and that's all allowed and fine. The thing that I'm wondering around the elections laws is if they give 
like nation builder setups or that kind of CRM database systems to candidates, I think that would count as an in-kind donation and that would be prohibited as. Yeah, that, that would be my reading of the regulations as well. It's, it does seem like it's the exact same crew of people that are involved in Visions of Vancouver, the group that we mentioned last week that had obvious connections to the NPA based on their websites being basically identical. Yeah, and a couple of people pointed out that the Pacific Prosperity Network website looks very similar in many ways to the Views of Vancouver website. And also, someone pointed out in my DMs that there's a random old page on Views of Vancouver's website where the social media links go to the Pacific Prosperity Network's Facebook and Instagram page, suggesting whoever built one built the other and just forgot to change something. But that's not an official connection. It is interesting to note that Views of Vancouver currently has two ads running on Facebook during the pre-election period. They're not officially endorsing or opposing any candidates. They're just saying... Tent cities are bad, and this council has allowed them to happen. Yeah, they don't have any options or proposals as to how to prevent tent cities, short of saying, wouldn't it be nice if those people just disappeared? But It's not that we're against homeless people, we just don't like seeing them. <laughs> as opposed to the appropriate position, which is being against people being homeless. Ah, oh, but speaking of homelessness in Vancouver. The city's fire chief issued an order on Monday that calls for all tents and structures to be removed from sidewalks along East Hastings Street because of, quote, numerous urgent safety concerns, unquote, according to a news release from the city of Vancouver. Vancouver is Awesome has been covering this. This is an article from Mike Howell, and uh, he shows some of the conditions that have grown up along the 100 block of East Hastings Street and why the city's fire chief is growing concerned about the potential for a fire in the area and the catastrophic damage that it could cause to both people and property. I drove up there a week or two ago and it is significantly more populated with tents and people on the sidewalks than I've ever seen it. There was a lot of outrage when the fire chief made this statement because it was among some of the hotter days of the year so far, and people were going, well, where are they going to go? And that seems to be the challenge of why this urgent call has been postponed a little bit as the city doesn't know the answer to that and are currently trying to secure storage lockers for all of the people's stuff that they're about to evict from the sidewalks. So the urgent call is a soon, but there's a lot of outrage over this and not a lot of good answers other than the current conditions aren't great, but it's the same debate we've been having over the tent cities in each of the parks, which is you need to do something more than just say, get out. Yes, because people have to go somewhere. And the obvious answer is give them homes. But uh, we are apparently not quite there yet, neither in a construction <laughs> capacity or as an evolved society. <laughs> Changing tack to the upcoming election and a number of candidates who are announcing, positioning themselves, I think the most fun thing to note here is that Ken Sim and A Better City Vancouver have done a bit of an about face and have now said they will run candidates for park board and they're not going to be so keen on eliminating it. They just want to have it function better. 
Boo! For shame. Like, <laughs> the one bold policy that I was actually interested in, and you have gone and backed away from it so slowly and so quietly and hope like no one would notice but it is a shame like i i was impressed that someone was actually calling for it uh, them deciding that they are going to just work within established power structures to perpetuate this absurd division of power that exists in vancouver is sad justin mcelroy had tweeted this out and he's got a whole thread where he tries to pin ken sim down on anything ken sim i guess is pro improving the stanley park bike lane he is for expanding places to drink in parks uh other than that he is vague about his position on the grass is too tall debate he has sim replied that we will make sure vancouver is shiny clean and the grass is cut very well but let's deal with bigger social issues and challenges first uh, i hate twitter twitter is the worst so moving from Twitter to Vote Socialist. Vote Socialist has announced its candidates and their initial platform. Vote Socialist 2022.ca has announced that Sean Orr will be running for city council, Dr. Karina Ziedler for school board, and Andrea Pinochet Escudero. Andrea Pinochet Escudero will be yeah, running for Yeah, Orr is pretty board. noted on Twitter. A number of people have followed him for his leftist takes, and I think. He'll be quite the interesting candidate to watch. Dr. Ziedler uh, was one of those voices that I think came to prominence during COVID debates and was one of the people strongly calling for more measures, particularly in schools. So seeing her run there is really interesting. And Pinochet Escardo is actually the partner of Derek O'Keefe, who ran for COPE in the last election. She has a impressive resume on her own, but I thought that connection was also pretty interesting. Vote Socialist has also put up their full platform. It includes things like the 50 cent transit fare that got covered by the Vancouver Strait, as well as housing. They want to both adopt the manifesto put up by the Vancouver Tenants Union, but also support a lot more public housing. You can go check out their website if you want to dig into it. I was really wondering how many candidates Vote Socialist would launch because splitting that COPE vote would be interesting, but just running one for each position, I think is a very smart move for a startup party to just get their name on the ballot and put some ideas out there. Yeah, I agree. It's a canny move, and I am interested to see how they are going to divvy up the left wing of vote, whether they are going to be thrown like one vote by a person who is voting left and lefter than left, because I would imagine that they are going to vote for example, straight ticket one city plus maybe some cope and a vote socialist candidate. The other thing you may not have to do is vote for as many greens if that's your chosen color as Zara Eshmael has dropped out of the race for the park board on behalf of the greens following a conflict of interest identified by the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction. Eshmael is the chair of the Poverty Reduction Advisory Committee and the province basically said it might be too much of a conflict for you to be on the board of parks and recreation and on the poverty reduction advisory committee at the same time yeah this is unusual and i i am surprised to see the ministry coming out and making such a statement or such a finding i 
like I, I wonder why this wouldn't be solved by her declaring a conflict when a, such a conflict arose. Um, normally, that's what you can do. You can absent yourself from the discussions and recuse yourselves from voting. It's un- I just can't see why this is happening. I wish I knew anything more about this. I'll link to Charlie Smith's uh, consp- not quite conspiracy smelling around, but that kind of analysis in the show notes. Let's go to Surrey. Yeah. The race is heating up there. Yes, it is heating up to the point where Doug McCallum might become favorite to win again. As both with 20% of the vote, as two more federal liberals enter the race, joining Brenda Locke in what is already a crowded field, uh, as well as Jenny Sims in the anti Doug McCallum side of the ballot. Why? I do not know. Why cannot these people get their acts together and coordinate like a primary? I do not know. But there they are, Suk Dollywall, Gordy Hogg, and Brenda Locke, all federal liberals, all unable to apparently talk to each other, two of them being federal MPs. Why is this happening? I do not get it. So Dollywall is launching the United Surrey slate. He has Julie Tapley, former Surrey NDP MP, Jasbir Sandhu, Becky Zhao, and Jeff Bridge on the slate and says more will be announced. Gordy Hogg is going to lead the Surrey first slate, which includes sitting councillor Linda Annis. So they all have parties as well. I forget Locke has a party as well. It's a mess. I feel bad for everyone in Surrey who has to decide who to vote for, but maybe we'll see someone drop out before the official candidate deadlines in September. Someone better drop out. This is absurd. Like, Doug McCallum has not been a fantastic mayor, but he will deserve this win if his opposition is, like, so bumble-headed that they managed to fall ass backwards into handing him the mayoralty on a silver platter. Out in Port Moody, the mayorship is up for grabs as incumbent mayor Rob Vagramov has announced that he is not running again. This comes after a rather controversial term as one of the province's youngest mayors following sexual harassment allegations, which were settled out of court. Yes, those allegations ended up with Vagramov going through alternative measures, a program that allows for a diversion prior to hitting the court system. Uh, Vagramov notably didn't step away from council at that time. I think he did after a while, but there was a lot of consternation about whether someone facing criminal charges should have to leave council. We now have more rules about that to help clarify it. But it looks like yes, we the... Do. Thanks not really to him, but to rather Doug McKellen's Enough Mr. shit Church, landed on the province's but... plate. They went, all right, we'll deal with this. Leading the charge to replace Vagramov <laughs> looks like Councillor Steve Milani. Milani had voted to let Vagramov stay on council and seemed like a pretty good ally. I don't know the interworkings of Port Moody's council enough to say much more about his politics, but it seems like if you liked Vagramov, Milani is your guy. And if you didn't, hope someone else runs. Back in Vancouver and out to Third Beach, where drum circles are apparently rooting the beach for everyone. The story is so stupid. It's incredibly dumb. 
So apparently drum circle participants have been harassing lifeguards who were unable to reach an unconscious swimmer last week. That seems dangerous. Then was met with an announcement that lifeguards would no longer patrol Third Beach as late as other beaches. They would be stopping at 7 p.m. versus 8.30 p.m. because that seems like the appropriate thing to do. There's a union safety or a worker safety aspect here where if you can't guarantee your people who are there to, who look after safety safety then pulling them out i guess does make sense but this now means that police and park rangers are going to be patrolling the beach in the evening the incident with the unconscious swimmer sounds like there were thousands of people there and allegedly there were some pretty vicious slurs thrown at the lifeguards and who i like i'm just struggling to imagine who harasses a lifeguard like what is going on in your life? That's what you're getting off on? Yeah. Okay. So, if you're going down to the drum circle, I don't know, behave yourself. If you're going to drink in public, because I imagine some alcohol was involved here, just behave yourself. What on earth are you doing? If you can't hold your shit together and remain as a civilized person, a civilized member of society, you are proving the people who say we shouldn't be able to drink in public, and I want to prove those people wrong. Like, I think we can be trusted. But don't demonstrate that we can. Yeah, this seems like it'll be an ongoing story, so we'll keep our eye on it. This follows the story you talked about last week with, or last episode with the logs being in jail. Our beaches are embarrassing us, and it seems like a lot of that is on the park board, where we can talk about a bit more drama, because holy shit, I have three different things to tell you about, Matthew. Yeah, so Let, let's. Why don't you start us off? I understand that the park board devolved into basically a yelling match and had to be shut yeah, down. Yeah, so they were debating the continuing bike lane through Stanley Park. This is using one of the lanes as a bike lane. It's been pretty popular with cyclists who want more space to bike through the park. It's been super opposed by people who love driving through the park and a small number like, you still can drive through the park, but it was getting heated. Yeah, you just can't drive everywhere. Yeah. So, at one of it's... the meetings, a man by the name of Phil Rankin, who is ironically Harry Rankin's son, Harry Rankin being a long-serving socialist counselor on the city of Vancouver who helped found COPE. Phil is a lawyer in town. He went on a weird tirade, citing random statistics and just really trying to filibuster and shut down the ability of the bike lane to go through. It did pass in the end, but at one point he argues that staff reporting on how the bike lane has been used are being driven by their ideology. Those notable ideologues on the Vancouver Park Board staff, Chair Camille Dumont pointed out that was a personal attack on staff and violated the Park Board's code of conduct, so he cut Phil Rankin off. Some back and forth went on and finally Dumont being just shaken and frustrated recessed the meeting so everyone could calm the fuck down which is a thing that happened yeah it's disappointing again my response is behave yourselves people like what on earth is happening we have to maintain a certain level of decorum in our political discussions otherwise we are like like, not living up to the promise and, like, 
commitments of democracy. I guess part of it was as well, there was an excessive number of people in the small boardroom. And if you've never seen where the park board meets, they don't have a proper debating chamber. They have a spare room with a round table that they sit at. And it looks sad. I feel like the park board does deserve a better debating chamber if they're going to continue to be an elected body. Yeah. It looks like a lunchroom. It looks like they're meeting in a lunchroom. If you must exist, then I suppose you should have a place to work. If you must. The park board has now said only registered speakers are going to be allowed in the boardroom going forward. This kind of brings us to a later meeting where they're discussing the code of conduct, at which point one speaker comes up who identifies himself as a staff member, like a lower staff member at the park board. And he brings up that he's been subjected to abuse and harassment on the job and doesn't feel like he's had proper venues to bring his concerns about. The chair, I think it was Dumont again at the time, referred him to other staff to deal with internally. I think partially for the staff member's protection, just because making those allegations in a public forum could come back to impact his job prospects internally. Although it does take something to stand up and say before like the body that leads you, hey, stuff is not going well inside the park board. Yeah, that's a shame. And I applaud this guy for coming forward and speaking out against bullying. I think it's a laudable thing to do. And finally, to bring our episode full circle, let's talk about John Cooper one more time, a member of the park board. At another meeting, he brought up a point of privilege. Uh, You're a big fan of Robert's Rules of Order, Matthew. You know what a point of privilege is. Truly the biggest fan. A Robert's Rules stan am I. In this case, his point of privilege was that fellow counselor or commissioner Dave Demers had liked a tweet that called Cooper an, quote, (laughs) a-hole. And that violated the code of conduct. (laughs) Is that a point of privilege? I... Yeah, I th- no, not really. Like point, points of privilege are for infractions during the meeting, I would imagine. Maybe he liked it during the meeting? I don't know. Yeah, it's I not clear. Well, I think you could raise this during other business. If I were chairing a meeting, I would not rule this in order, but say perhaps you could bring this up in other business violations of a code of conduct. That is like something that I would hope doesn't happen that much. I think that Demers uh, said that this was inadvertent and has since unliked it, uh, which I think is the right thing to do. You should really like things that call your commissioner, park board colleagues, or any people that you're working with an asshole, even if they've taken out both S's. In <laughs> in resolution to this, Cooper has since blocked Demers on Twitter, <laughs> leading us once again to remind everyone that Twitter is a horrible place. And the world like, would be better if it did. To bring exist. it back to Cooper, to bring it back to Cooper dropping out of the mayoral race, maybe it's just that he can't take the heat. And like, politics can be a nasty place. I don't think this rises to the level of the vitriol and the hate that many, particularly women and people of color, face if they run for politics. But it might just be he's too thin-skinned to take some people like saying semi-nasty things about him. Yeah, and if you're going to run for mayor, especially with the NPA, you're going to have nasty things said about you. It is a vitriolic atmosphere, and people are angry out there, and uh, often with good reason to be. So, maybe, yeah, maybe this was his breaking point. 
Or maybe he just didn't want to be mayor. <laughs> and realized he wasn't going to be. Yeah. He this didn't job want to sucks lose and the race lose, to be mayor. Losing, losing a job for losing a race for a job that I don't want seems like it would suck. Why am I doing this? Let's close off like we do every episode with our Vancouverada and let's talk about beaches to bring it back. It's nice summer weather. Yeah. Let's talk about some beaches, Matthew. There are four beaches along the northern shores of False Creek leading out to English Bay, and they are numbered 3rd, 2nd, English Bay, and Sunset, which are 1st and 0th Beach, respectively, to really my consternation, as well as I hope everyone else who likes a sensible naming system, but there we have it, those are the names. Maybe arguably English Bay Beach is like the first of the Stanley Park beaches because it's connected by, I don't know, I'm trying to justify it. It's not in Stanley Park. It's not there. Like Fair. Historically, the beaches haven't always looked like they do today. They have uh, not. Let's start out at Third Beach, where activehistory.ca writes that there's been a lot of reconstruction in that area of Stanley Park. This beach was built up throughout the 20th century by the park board who dredged sand from English Bay to create the shoreline. A lot of the forest was cleared away by the military for defense installations in the 30s and 40s. And in 1939, the military installed two six-inch guns at Ferguson Point near there, aimed out over the entrance to the Burrard Inlet in English Bay to guard against potential attacks. So that that beach is artificial. I don't actually Mm -hmm. know if any of them are natural. I don't think any of them are natural at this point anymore, anyway. All beaches require some kind of maintenance against erosion. Uh, The nature of beaches is that they move. (laughs) And if we want to keep them in the same place, they need preservation. (laughs) Long. Go ahead. Yeah, further down on the beach, the vista that you would see driving down Beach Avenue is considerably different than you would about a century ago. Harlan Bartholomew, to bring his name up again, was responsible for buying up and destroying a number of uh, homes along Beach Avenue that created the Pleasure Drive, Harlan Bartholomew's Pleasure Drive, one of several around the city that we see there today. And this stretch from around Nicholas Street to either side of it, basically knocking down a bunch of houses that were previously on the beach side of Beach Avenue. If you were out at Pride Parade and enjoyed the view of that, you can thank the segregationist Harlem Bartholomew. <laughs> Okay, and that brings us to an end of another exciting issue of the Camby Report. Thank you so much for joining us. There are only 79 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. It is going to be a very strange and exciting ride. There are only 71 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. It is going to be a very strange and exciting ride, and we are very glad that you have decided to join us for it. Please do share this podcast with your friends. Uh, This is a time when we are going to be ramping up our coverage, so we would appreciate that increased listenership, and uh, we thank you for sticking with us to all our longtime listeners. For Leg and Boot Media, I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Good afternoon.